I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis. As today we read Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. <coughs> and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days, and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, 
livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word, how it is true and faithful. And we ask that in these moments we would give heed to what you are saying and that we would live our lives in accordance with the hope, with the certainty and the conviction of what is true. We ask that you would bless us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Today's Mother's Day, but mothers, despite our desire to give you a great day, my guess is that for many of you, you've already had stress. You've already had difficulty. And I'm sorry to ruin the surprise, but you're probably going to have more stress later on today, and I'm so sorry about that. The fact of the matter is, is problems plague us. The troubles and trials and difficulties of life are all around. And, and, and we really can't avoid it. And I'm sorry that's the case, but it is. Where do we go? What do we do when we have all these difficulties? And especially when the tensions become such that we're about to break. The anxiety, the fear, so great it's almost able to be cut with a knife. When the existential threats to our well-being are so manifest that there's no dodging, no avoiding, 
When that diagnosis comes and it's there, what do you do? Where do you go? In whom and in what do you hope? The Bible, the Christian faith derived from it, tells us a lot of wondrous things. It tells us of what was, what is, and what will be. The Bible sheds light on who we are. It helps us understand what is wrong. It helps us interpret what is right. It shows forth the way to peace, the way to life. The Bible holds forth the certainty of coming judgment and the promise of everlasting life in the world to come. The Bible is a wondrous book. And from the Bible, we all make theological claims. As Sproul said, everybody's a theologian. We all say things about God, things about reality. God is loving. People love to say that. Where do they get the idea that God is loving? From the Bible. Brothers and sisters, my task as a minister of the word is to proclaim the very words of God and to exposit. That means to explain and apply them faithfully. And to do so faithfully means that I'm accurate in the exegesis of the details, of the particulars. It also means that the message is balanced, interpreted, shaped by the cohesive message of the whole of Scripture and its generalities. The reason that there is such a task as the ministry of the Word is because Jesus has tied our sanctification to the Word and that the Word of God is given, it's breathed out by God that by means of training, reproof, correction, instruction, we would be complete, lacking nothing we need for every good work. But if we step back, everything I just said assumes that God's word can be trusted. Everything I've just said assumes that God can communicate truthfully, and that he has. If he has not, then there is absolutely no ground for hope in anything. If he has, then we have something to build our lives on. As Jesus says, it's not sentiments of me that are the rock on which you can build, no, it's my words. The very words of God are that which upon we can build our lives. Today, we come to a passage at the very fount, the very head of Scripture. It's a beautiful passage. It's unparalleled in its beauty of prose and in the majesty of its treatment of the subject and of the loftiness of its aim. It is a well-written passage. Moses didn't just jot this down on the fly. 
He put some work into it. And it's beautiful. But you know what else? For as lofty, as beautiful as this chapter is, as this prelude to Genesis is, exegetically speaking, this passage is pretty simple. The Old Testament's full of grammatical problems and all these issues, but believe it or not, this chapter is grammatically very simple. Textually speaking, it's straightforward. Textually speaking, it bears all the hallmarks of standard, stereotypical Hebrew prose. Historical narrative. What does that mean? Well, in its use of grammatical forms, the vav consecutive is used, the use of straightforward delineating language, the use of the, the, the word yom day next to a number, all this stuff, it is prose. And it, while it shows all the hallmarks of standard stereotypical Hebrew narrative, it bears none of the trademarks of Hebrew poetry. It has to be remembered that Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry. English poetry is characterized by rhyme. Hebrew poetry, that doesn't matter. Hebrew poetry is characterized by repetition. So you read the Psalms, and many of you think he's perhaps how, how one line will say something, and the very next line kind of says it, but a little bit different. He's not talking about two different things. It's the same thing said Hebrew poetry style. So clear is the straightforward reading of this passage that every bit of historical evidence we have shows that the Jews took it at face value. The early church took this at face value. In fact, one exception, really, as John Collins, who's a professor at Covenant Seminary and, and one who does not affirm the straightforward reading of this text, as he says in his book, as he acknowledges, really, prior to the rise of the new geology in the late 19th century, most Bible readers understood the creation period to be one ordinary week. But yet, since the late 19th century, which is about 150 years, we've been told that this is a difficult passage. We've been told that there's a plethora of views, thus it is hopelessly naive to think we can arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Yet, brothers and sisters, I want you to have certainty in God's word. The question really is this simple. It really, really is. Does God communicate truthfully and plainly so that we can understand him, or does he not? Period. Because there is not one, there is not one problem that opponents of the straightforward reading of the text bring to this passage that do not also apply to every single miracle in the Bible. 
There is absolutely, absolutely no way to affirm that the earth stood still and the sun was in the sky without implying grotesque cosmological destruction apart from miraculous. A dead person does not come out of the grave except by the miraculous. And so, as the book of Hebrews tells us, by faith, we believe that God made all things out of nothing. And so, it really does come down to, does God speak, truthfully speak, plainly to be understood? It's a question of authority. Who or what gets to call the shots and set the narrative? Again, prior to the advent of the new geology, Christians understood that Scripture calls the shots. And these weren't dummies. The people up till the 1800s were the ones who made this culture, who built the ships and the buildings and the ideas. They weren't stupid. But yet, every modern interpretation of this passage that asserts something other than the straightforward reading does so in accommodation to an a priori commitment to the alleged findings of science. We know this from science. The science says that. Therefore, the passage cannot mean what it seems to mean. The framework theory, which we're going to talk about in a minute, it's really, it's an anomaly within the Reformed world only. But it was developed and propagated heavily by a guy named Meredith Klein out in California, at Westminster. And as he wrote in an article in 1996... He says, I advocate an interpretation of biblical cosmogony according to which Scripture is open to the current scientific view of a very old universe and, in that respect, does not discountenance the theory of the evolutionary origin of man. So you must understand, every, every starting point is a basis of authority. Do we take our stand with the word of God or with the alleged findings of science? This posture of accommodating the world is unbefitting a people whose credo is sola scriptura. Science. Some of you have been raised to think that the geological record absolutely uniformly shows evolutionary causes and processes. I'm here to tell you that it does not. There's lots of evidence out there. There's lots of inconsistencies. And and so so when we talk about science, this, this culture has made an idol out of science, and we've seen it in this past year. The science says. But there's a difference. What are we talking about when we talk about science? 
Are we talking about the scientific method? If it's a scientific method, it's just a tool. But if it's just a tool that depends upon repeatable evidences and being able to test hypotheses, how do you test origins on that? But still, it's a tool, the, the scientific method is. It's a tool in service to the worldview of the one using that tool. Is science a worldview? And, and, and I think that's, the, that's, that's where the world is. When it, it refers to an atheistic worldview of naturalism that excludes and wants to explain, excludes the supernatural and wants to explain everything, everything atheistically for purposes of humanism and all sorts of things. But what you oftentimes hear is that, oh, the Bible was not written as a science textbook. In that case, okay, so we're using talking about science as a, as a, as a language, a way of speaking about the world. Now, that is true, brothers and sisters. The Bible was not written as a science textbook. But here's the fallacy to associate science with truth or science with actually happened in history. No, science is a way of speaking. We don't speak scientifically most of the time. Did you know that? We speak what's called plainly. So you may speak of your uncle having a heart attack. Guess what? That's plain language. That's not the scientific explanation for what went down. All the time we use common language. And did you see what I just did there? I said all the time, which is not a scientific expression at all, but it is a plain expression. Now, when I say my uncle had a heart attack, I'm not being scientific. I'm being ordinary and plain in the use of language. But is there a correspondence? Is it a true thing that happened? Is, or is it something fanciful? No, it, it refers to an actual thing that just happened, and we all know what we're talking about. Even though the language employed is not the precision that we associate with scientific speech. And quite frankly, God's word speaks plainly. It speaks the language of, that people speak in normal discourse. And I believe that one of the most arrogant and, and, and disingenuous things that moderns have done is to come to the Bible and expect and demand that God has spoken in the way that we find acceptable, rather than acknowledging that God speaks the way we all actually do on our day-to-day -day lives, which is ordinarily. We've been told there are people who have different views, and, and they're sincere in their positions. So, you know, what are we going to do? They're sincere. And my question is, what does sincerity have to do with anything? According to Oprah Winfrey, sincerity is the only thing you need when it comes to religion. I know terror, I've met terrorists who are sincere. Sincere just means you genuinely, deeply believe it. It doesn't mean it's true. So when we challenge 
an alternative understanding, we're not questioning sincerity. We're, we're questioning perhaps the level of self-awareness they have of how they may have been influenced by worldly thought. For example, earlier, earlier I said that throughout the history of the Christian church, with the exception of one, who was that exception? This guy named Augustine. And he believed that the world was made instantly and that God just divided it out amongst six days for our education. Now, Calvin, if you read Calvin, he just dismisses that with a backhand. I won't do that, but I will say he made a mistake. How so? He was coming out of the age of allegorical interpretation. His own writings are filled with it. And so even throughout his writings, when he uses the term literal to describe anything, you read it and you're like, it doesn't sound, I don't think he's using literal the way we use literal because it seems pretty fanciful on a whole host of topics. It must be remembered that Augustine was not an exegete. This may shock some of you, but Augustine, the great brilliant mind, he didn't know a lick of Hebrew. And he barely had a first semester grade knowledge of Greek. All he had was his old Latin. And he was heavily dependent on his buddy Jerome, who was busy translating the Vulgate. And the Vulgate was notoriously filled with bad translations, which got codified into the Roman church with all sorts of false practices, all because of bad translations. And so what Augustine had was a bad translation in Latin of an apocryphal text that said, in an apocryphal text, a bad translation of it into Latin, that the God who existed created all things in an instant. Except... Now that they've done the archaeological research and they found the Hebrew of those things, it, the word instant isn't even in that passage. So it was literally a bad translation. Augustine, who was not an exegete, simply made a mistake. There you go. The framework hypothesis posited by Ritterboss from the Netherlands, but really not made famous until Meredith Klein took up the mantle. Uh, it's an aim to dehistorize the text. And what it does is it says that instead of seeing this as a sequential listing of days, despite the appearance of Hebrew narrative, what God is doing here is providing us a framework theologically that we can kind of wrap our minds around of how the king creates kingdoms and subordinate kings to govern those kingdoms. So what we have in the creation account according to this is a framework that God created three kingdoms and then fills them with three kings to govern them. And he didn't necessarily do so chronologically. They're arranged topically and it's there so that we can know, oh, God did this theologically so we could understand certain truths about him, certain truths about the world in which we 
exist. Proponents, since they use the framework as their lingo, the six days don't actually mean six days like we would use them. They mean six, functionally, six categories, six placeholders. But yet proponents are remarkably well-trained at standing there and saying the words of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 4.1. They will tell you. If you say to a framework proponent, what do you believe about creation? He will stand there and say, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible in the space of six days, and all very good. And whenever they finish, I have to confess that I'm tempted, I'm waiting for them to squawk like a parrot. And, and I want to ask them if they want a cracker. Be, because when they say six days, they do not mean the straightforward, what we mean when we say six days, ordinarily. The framework hypothesis is such that it enables them with a straight face and with full sincerity to say, I believe in creation in six, six days. As long as you're not asking them to elaborate, what do you mean by six days? Proponents insist a key linchpin to the framework hypothesis theory is the insistence that ordinary providence was operational during creation. Ordinary providence was operational during creation. That's, that, is, that is essential to it. So what that means practically is right now it takes a long time for a forest to fill up a deforested field. So therefore, since that's how providence works, it took a long time back then for a forest to cover a field. I've been to many Civil War battlefields and it's crazy to see these gnarly forests and to learn that, that back in the day it was a cornfield. So, okay, it takes less than 150 years for some kinds of forests to form, but it's still a long time. Ordinary providence was at work during creation. And I want to ask, who says? How, how, why do you think that? In, in fact, I would posit it's unconfessional to say that. Why? Because our confession says that the works of God are distinguished between creation and what? And providence. Providence is a separate matter from creation. Providence is the ordinary rules and systems that God has instituted to sustain life on this planet. And creation is something distinct. Why? Or how do we know? Because through natural providence, you do not get creation ex nihilo. You do not get something from nothing by ordinary providence. And what blows my mind is that it's not an exegetical rationale. It's, it's literally the, they lack the will to go there, it seems, they will argue, argue, argue for old earth evolutionary processes within the framework, all this stuff. But yet because they know that it's a bridge too far to say Adam too evolved, Mer Meredith Klein leaves open the possibility, though, in his article, though he, he knows it's a bridge too far to say that, that Adam evolved. So he backs off 
But there's no, there, there's no logical reason why if evolution was involved in the framework, that it would not have been, why, why stop there? It's sheer will. My brothers and sisters, the straightforward reading of the text is straightforward. Moses, it must be remembered, was utterly unique. The word of God tells us that God spoke to Moses in a way he did not speak to other prophets. He says he spoke to Moses face to face directly as a man with his friend. And so Moses, with his unique position, sets out to write the book of Genesis. And something that every single writer will agree upon is that Genesis has as its aim the demythologizing of history. So I, I do not think that proponents, modern proponents of these other views, I don't think they've really done the reflecting on that. If it's true that God intends to demythologize, to set the record straight, you're telling me he demythologized history by inventing another myth? That he's providing us a theological paradigm garbed in the language of natural phenomenon, which, which is a myth. You're telling me that he attempts to clear the record and set the record straight by presenting me with something that appears to be true, but, but, but really it's, it's not? Brothers and sisters, this passage is a narrative written by Moses. Its language is ordinary. Its prose is beautiful. But God speaks. And as the creator of all things, that which he creates comes into being, and it was so. The justive case that's used whenever it says he speaks, the justive case is used to imply now. It's what a, someone in authority says when it's like, I'm giving you something to do and, and it best be done right now. God speaks and it happens. And this is good news because the same God who communicates to us what actually happened in the world's infancy can be counted on to have told us the truth of what we can expect when we die is the same God who can be counted on to have communicated truthfully and accurately what it will be like at the end of all things when the Son of God returns and evil is finally destroyed. What a glorious truth. So the word of God is sure and the word of God is certain. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to cling to the Bible and to every blessed promise and to every blessed word it presents forth. Let's pray.